Hello, and welcome to another episode of the APOG Podcast. I'm the show's host and creator, Morgan Bechtel, and today we'll be starting our journey into contraceptives. This will be the first of a two-part series that dives into the details of contraception. For as long as people have been having sex, there have been people trying not to get pregnant. Now, at one time, it was illegal to own or even provide education on contraception, but we now live in a time where many people have access to affordable or even free birth control. In today's political climate, where reproductive rights are being questioned more and more, it's hard not to feel as if history is repeating itself. That's why it's more important than ever to know what options are available. In today's episode, we'll be covering the basics of tubal ligation, vasectomies, IUDs, implantable and injectable birth control, as well as birth control pills. We'll discuss the various forms, their effectiveness, as well as potential benefits and side effects of each. So grab hold of your diaphragms as we dive into the details of contraception. We'll start today's episode with the more permanent solution to baby making. That's tubal ligation and vasectomies. I put permanent in air quotes as these methods can be reversed, but more on that later. Tubal ligation involves the fallopian tubes being either A, completely removed, B, cut and uh, segments removed, or C, closed by ligation, fulgration, aka cautery, or various mechanical devices like plastic bands, rings, or clips to close the tube. Now, the goal of these methods is to prevent the egg from traveling down into the uterus or the sperm traveling up into the fallopian tube where fertilization can occur. Now, tubal ligation can be done during a cesarean delivery or, you know, really at any time. Pregnancy rates are higher with spring-loaded clips than plastic bands. Procedures that use mechanical devices cause less tissue damage and thus may be more reversible than closure by ligation or fulguration. So, if you could clip it closed or remove just a portion of the tube, what's the benefit of removing the entire fallopian tube? Well, complete removal of the fallopian tube may reduce the risk of ovarian cancer. There are three main methods for which a tubal ligation is performed. Laparoscopy, hysteroscopy, and mini laparotomy. Now, it's important to note that the hysteroscopy is a technique that's no longer being used in the U.S., A mini laparotomy is sometimes used instead of laparoscopic procedures, and this usually occurs when a woman wants permanent contraception very soon after delivery of a baby. Mini laparotomy requires either general, regional, or local anesthetic. It involves a small abdominal incision and removal of a section of each fallopian tube. Compared with laparoscopy, mini laparotomy causes more pain and recovery takes a little longer. So you may be asking yourself, how effective is a tubal ligation and who can get it? Well, effectiveness varies slightly based on the method for which it's performed. For example, silicone bands have a 10-year failure rate of approximately 17.7 per 1,000 cases, while spring clips ring in about 36.5 per 1,000 cases. However, it was found in women over the age of 34, the difference in the method didn't really impact the effectiveness as much as it did in younger patients. This is probably due to the declining fertility rate in women who are above 34. Most women qualify for tubal ligations. However, many states have age requirements for the procedure to be performed. For example, in my home state of Virginia, you must be at least 18 years old to have a sterilization procedure performed. Special legal and ethical criteria must be met in cases where the patient undergoing sterilization 
generalization, has a physical, psychological, or intellectual disability. The only real time the procedure may be contraindicated or may be difficult to perform is if the patient has a history of abdominal surgeries or if the patient has a past medical history of endometriosis due to the adhesions or scar tissue that could be present. Now, some side effects of tubal ligation include mild discomfort for up to two to three days after the procedure, which can be managed with NSAIDs. Complications from tubal ligations are very, very rare, with hemorrhage or intestinal injury occurring in about 0.5% of women and death occurring in approximately 1 in 100,000 cases. Ectopic pregnancy is another possible delayed complication, with a rate of approximately 7.3 to 1,000 participants, according to the Collaborative Review of Sterilization, or the CREST study. Let's shift our focus and talk about the procedure for the penis-equipped humans, the vasectomy. In this procedure, the vas deferens, or the tubes that carry the sperm from the testicle to the urethra, are cut. And the cut ends are either ligated or fulgurated, which again is the cauterizing of the tissue with an electrical current. A vasectomy can be done in about 20 minutes with the use of local anesthetic. It's important to note that it takes approximately 20 ejaculations after the operation to achieve sterility, and a backup contraceptive method should be used until that time. Now, almost all penis-equipped humans can have a vasectomy performed, the only contraindications being the presence of a scrotal hematoma, genitourinary infection, or sperm granuloma. Complications of a vasectomy include hematomas, sperm granulomas, and a spontaneous reanastomosis. If pregnancy is desired after the procedure, reanastomosis may be considered, but pregnancy rates after vasectomy reversal are approximately 30%. It needs to be mentioned that this number came from a study that evaluated patients who were seeking reversal approximately 15 years after their vasectomy. So this number may be subject to change based on the age of the patient and their partner. Next, we'll dive into the intricacies of IUDs, or intrauterine devices. An IUD is a T-shaped device that's inserted into the uterus to prevent conception. IUDs come in both hormonal and non-hormonal forms. The non-hormonal option includes Paragard, aka the copper IUD. Non-hormonal contraception is generally recommended over hormonal contraception for patients who are considered high-risk, meaning that there's a history of blood clots, breast cancer, they're a smoker over 35, etc. The copper IUD works because the element copper inhibits sperm motility and viability. The copper IUD can also be used as a form of emergency contraception if inserted within five days of unprotected sexual activity. Once inserted, the copper IUD maintains its effectiveness for a full 10 years, with a failure rate of approximately 0.8% or approximately one in every 125 people. There is also no long-lasting impact on fertility. It returns immediately after IUD removal. Side effects are similar to other IUDs, including intermittent spotting or heavy prolonged bleeding, which is most common during the first three to six months. Contraindications to the copper IUD include a copper allergy, Wilson's disease, which is, remember, that excess of copper in the body, acute pelvic inflammatory disease, suspected pregnancy, or abnormalities, anatomical or otherwise, that would distort the uterine cavity and impact the insertion of the device. Hormonal IUDs contain the hormone levonorgestrel, which prevents fertilization by increasing the amount of and thickening the consistency of cervical mucus. This makes the cervical os impenetrable to sperm. As of now, there are five types of hormonal IUDs, and they range in length of effectiveness. The Mirena IUD, which made its debut in 2001, lasts a total of five years. 
The Lyletta, four years. The Kylina is five years. And the Skyla is three years. Now, I won't go into the difference between each of these IUDs because then this episode would be over an hour long. But just know that similar to the copper IUD, it doesn't have long-lasting effects on fertility. And the most common side effects include some spotting or heavy bleeding for the first three to six months. The effectiveness of the levonorgestrel IUD is similar to copper IUD, with a failure rate of approximately 0.2% to 0.6%, or 1 in 500 to 1 in 165 people within the first year. Now, the same contraindications also apply for the hormonal IUD as a copper IUD. Again, that's acute pelvic inflammatory disease, suspected pregnancy, or abnormalities, again, anatomical or otherwise, that would distort the uterine cavity and impact the insertion of the device. Now that we're familiar with the devices, let's talk about how they're placed. So after the cervix and the walls of the vagina are sterilized, a forceps-like device called a tenaculum is used to grip the cervix and steady it. Then a long rod called a sounding device is inserted into the uterus through the cervical os and is used to measure the length and orientation of the uterus. An IUD can be inserted if the length of the uterus is between six to nine centimeters. Then a special slider device is used to insert the IUD into the uterus where it unfolds into place. Once the slider device is removed, the strings of the IUD are cut just below the opening of the cervix. That way it can be felt with the fingers to ensure the IUD is still properly placed. A paracervical block with lidocaine might reduce patient pain during IUD insertion, and a vaginal or oral cytotec can be given to help soften the cervix to make insertion a little bit easier. Now, insertion of the IUD is often easier when a patient is on their menses or is finishing up their menses as the cervical os is slightly open. Common side effects of the procedure include discomfort and spotting afterwards, but more serious complications like uterine rupture or sepsis are luckily very rare. Speaking of inserted devices, let's shift our focus to the hormonal implant Nexplanon. Nexplanon is a progestin-only form of contraception containing the hormone adenogestrel. The Nexplanon is a 4-centimeter long rod that is inserted subdermally into the inner aspect of the non-dominant arm at approximately 8 to 10 centimeters from the medial epicondyle of the elbow. Now, this form of contraception works by suppressing ovulation, thickening cervical mucus, and altering the endometrial lining. It lasts up to three years and has a failure rate of approximately 0.05% in the first year, and that translates to roughly one in 2,000 females. Like the IUD, the implant has no long-term impacts on fertility. In addition to irregular or absent menses, other possible side effects include headaches, GI distress, breast tenderness, and vaginitis. In addition to the standard contraindications of hormone-containing contraception, remember that's allergy, pregnancy, thromboembolic disorders, and breast cancer, the implant is also contraindicated in patients with active hepatic disease or hepatic tumors. Other forms of progesterone-only contraception include the depo shot. Short for depo-medroxyprogesterone acetate, the depo shot is an injectable form of contraception that is administered intramuscularly or subdermally, depending on the dosage, every three months. Similarly to the Nexplanon, the Depo-Provera shot works to prevent pregnancy by suppressing ovulation and thickening the cervical mucus. If used properly, meaning no late doses, then the failure rate in the first year is approximately 0.2%, or 1 in 500 people. It's important to note that while the depo shot does not permanently impact endocrine function, it can cause a short delay in return to fertility, and that can be as long as a year. That's why it's important to discuss plans for pregnancy prior to the start of a new contraceptive. Possible side effects of the depo shot include weight gain, menstrual irregularities, amenorrhea, and headaches. 
There is also a known link to the use of the depot shot and decreased bone density. So it's recommended that after three years, a patient should stop the shots temporarily and get an updated DEXA. Now we'll move on to talk about oral contraception, more commonly known as the birth control pill. Oral contraception works by mimicking the normal ovarian hormones. Once ingested, they inhibit the release of LH and FSH by the pituitary. And if you want to learn more about this, go check out the menstrual cycle episode where I do deep dive into all the hormones involved in the menstrual cycle. Anyway, back to it. So the birth control pill works by disrupting this pathway in order to help prevent ovulation, as well as thinning the endometrium and thickening cervical mucus. Oral contraception comes in two major forms. The combination pill, which has a combination of estrogen and progestin-derived hormones, and progestin-only pills. We'll dive into why one is preferred over the other a little bit later on, but for now, we'll start with combo pills. Most common oral contraceptives contain between 10 to 35 micrograms of ethanol estradiol. This dose is considered low, which is preferred to the high dose, approximately 50 micrograms of estrogen, because lower doses appear equally effective and have fewer adverse effects. Most progestins used in oral contraceptives are related to 19 nor testosterone and are androgenic, meaning that they have higher risks of oily skin, acne, and weight gain. Norgestimate, adonorgestrel, and desogestrel are less androgenic than levonorgestrel, norethindrone, norethindrone acetate, and ethinodiol diacetate. Drospiridone is the newest progestin and it's considered anti-androgenic. Now, combo oral contraceptives come in monophasic and multiphasic forms. Multiphasic, meaning that the ratio of progestin to estrogen changes during the 21-day cycle, and monophasic, meaning the amount of estrogen and progestin each day stays the same. Now, typically an active pill, meaning those estrogen plus progestin, is taken for 21 to 24 days, and then an inactive or placebo pill is taken for anywhere from 4 to 7 days to allow for withdrawal bleeding. There are also options for extended cycle products with 84 active pills followed by 7 days placebo pills, or as continuous use product, meaning active pills every day with no placebo pills. You can start a patient on an oral contraceptive at any point in their cycle, but you must make a note that if it is greater than five days after the first day of menses, then the patient should use backup contraceptive methods, meaning, you know, condoms, for the first seven days of birth control pill use in order to prevent pregnancy. If a pill is missed during the pack, it's recommended that the patient take two pills the next day. If they forget to take a pill for two days in a row, then they should resume taking the birth control pill each day and should use a backup method for about seven days. If they forget to take a pill for two days and have had unprotected sex in the five days before forgetting to take that pill, then they should consider taking emergency contraception. Oral contraceptives are an effective form of birth control. When used properly and perfectly, it has about a 0.3% failure rate. And with inconsistent use, it has about a 9% failure rate. That's equal to about 1 in 11 people. Now, ovulation may be suppressed for several months after an oral contraceptive pill is stopped. However, no long-term effects on fertility have been noted. There are many benefits to using an oral contraceptive pill, including a decreased risk of endometrial cancer and ovarian cancer and by about 50%, and that's for at least 20 years after oral contraceptives are stopped. They also decrease the risk of benign ovarian tumors, abnormal uterine bleeding due to ovulatory dysfunction, dysmenorrhea, osteoporosis, premenstrual dysphoric disorder, iron deficiency anemia, benign breast disorders, and functional ovarian cysts. Like any medication, there are potential side effects from the use of oral contraceptive pills, ranging from common to serious. Common side effects include irregular vaginal bleeding, 
which again should resolve after the first two or three months. Other side effects include breakthrough bleeding, amenorrhea, bloating, which is usually from sodium retention, acne, nervousness, and weight gain. If a patient is experiencing breakthrough bleeding and the trial period has passed, meaning those two to three months, then the estrogen dose may need to be increased. If the patient develops amenorrhea, but it is not desired, then the progestin dose may need to be decreased. Serious side effects of oral contraceptive pills include deep vein thrombosis, venous thromboembolisms, and strokes. It's important to note that increased stroke risk seems to be mainly in smokers. Oral contraceptive pills do not appear to increase risk of stroke in healthy, normotensive, non-smoking women. Oral contraceptive pills should be stopped at least one month before any major surgery that requires immobilization for a long time and should not be taken again until one month afterwards. Women with a family history of idiopathic venous thromboembolism should not use oral contraceptives that contain estrogen. Now, contraindications to birth control pills include conditions which increase the risk of venous thromboembolism and deep vein thromboses. Contraindications to the birth control pill include conditions which increase the risk of blood clots and stroke, including less than 20 days postpartum, smoking greater than 15 cigarettes a day in women who are greater than 35, lupus, and having any sort of thrombogenic mutation. Other contraindications include history of breast cancer, severe decompensated cirrhosis, hepatocellular adenoma, liver cancer, or acute viral hepatitis, migraines with aura in women greater than 35, hypertension, diabetes for greater than 20 years, or with vascular complications like neuropathy, nephropathy, retinopathy, valvular heart disorders with complications, solid organ transplantation with complications, gallbladder disease or a history of contraceptive-related cholestasis, or hypertriglyceridemia. That certainly was quite the laundry list. Now you know why the informational handouts with birth control are so long. So that was all in reference to the combo oral contraceptive pill. Next, we'll talk about the progestin-only oral contraceptive pill. These pills work similarly to the combo pill. They also thicken cervical mucus and can suppress ovulation. However, it's not its prime method of action. Of the progestin-only pills, there's two main hormones used, norethindrone and drospiridone. These pills are taken every day and there's no inactive pills in the pack. It's important to point out that when taking progestin-only oral contraceptives, that these pills must be taken at the same time every day in order for the pills to be effective. If greater than 27 hours have elapsed between doses of progesterone-only pills, then the patient should use a backup contraceptive method for seven days in addition to taking the progesterone-only pill daily. The progesterone-only pills are considered just as effective as the combo pills and of similar side effects. Unlike the combo pill, fertility will return immediately after medication is discontinued. Contraindications to progestin-only pills include pregnancy, breast cancer, liver issues, and history of gastric bypass. Well, that wraps it up for me. Tune in next time where I'll be covering more forms of contraception, including the birth control patch, the ring, as well as various forms of barrier methods and fertility awareness tracking. As always, you can find the resources for this episode in the show notes, as well as links to our episodes on APOG's website, www.paopgyn.org. You can listen to us on Spotify, Apple Music, Stitcher, or anywhere podcasts are found. You can also follow APOG on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn at APAOG to stay up to date on all the cool things we're working on. And lastly, if you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. It definitely makes a difference in our visibility. And it would mean a lot to me. 
So anyway, that's it. That's the end of my pandering. Until next time, stay safe, tell someone you love them, and bring a little kindness into the world. Goodbye. Goodbye.